Yeah, we have, we have a, a, a tough task this morning. We have an entire chapter, John 21, to get through. So without further ado, we got we to gotta hop into it because I am going to be pressed on time. And if I start talking fast, I apologize. But let's go ahead and turn to John 21 and start in verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called twin, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's sons, and two others of his disciples were together. I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to them. We're coming with you, they told him. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. When daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Friends, Jesus called to them. You don't have any fish, do you? No, they answered. Cast the net on the right side of the boat, he told them, and you'll find some. So they did, and they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. The disciple, the one that Jesus loved, said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tied his outer clothing around him, for he had taken it off, and plunged into the sea. Since they were not far from land, about a hundred yards away, The other disciples came into the boat, dragging the net full of fish. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish lying on it and bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus told them. So Simon Peter climbed up and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. Even though there were so many, the net was not torn. Come and have breakfast, Jesus told them. None of the disciples dared ask, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them. He did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him. You know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. A second time he asked, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him. You know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told told him. He asked them a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. Truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and somebody else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. He said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. After saying this, he told him, follow me. So Peter turned around, saw the disciple. Jesus loved following him, following them, the one who leaned back against Jesus at supper, at the supper and asked, Lord, who is the one? It's going to betray you. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? If I want him to remain until I come, Jesus answered, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. So this rumor spread to the brothers and sisters that the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not tell him that he would not die, but if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true, and there, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if every one of them were written down, I suppose not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. 
Whew. So it took, and I looked this up, October 25th, 2020, we started the Gospel of John here at Redemption Church. If you're newer to Redemption Church or you're coming into the middle of that 70-week span, um, what, what we do is we take a book of the Bible and we preach through it from front to back. And the Gospel of John took us 70 weeks. And if you were with us during those 70 weeks, you know those 70 weeks have brought a ton of change to Redemption Church. We were meeting at the Need Cafe during COVID shutdown. That was the pandemic time. And man, we have a building now. We have a home. And we get to sit here and worship God together under a roof that we own. So glory be to God for that. It's been a crazy, absolutely, it's been a crazy 70 weeks. But with that said, we are in the last chapter of the Gospel of John. Now, many scholars do debate whether this chapter was written at the time of the, the, the first 20 chapters or if it was written later. But with that said, it's, it's kind of irrelevant because all of the earliest manuscripts all include this. So they come to an understanding that it probably was included in the original writing. And, and it was probably an epilogue. Now what an epilogue is, if you're not a, a reader or understand what an epilogue is, it's a common literary device that will tie up loose ends that were not addressed in the main narrative. So the confusion of chapter 21 happens because if you remember last week, Pastor Fred touched on the purpose statement at the end of 20. The purpose of John is to, to, to write a gospel so that people may believe in who Jesus was. And that, in reality, chapters 1 through 20 is all you need to satisfy the purpose statement. But if you read all of that and you, you understood the story of Peter, then you would be left with a huge cliffhanger, like, I wonder what happened to Peter. So John knows this, and he includes this chapter as an epilogue to kind of tie up some loose ends, because if they're not tied up, then other books of the Bible, we're jumping to conclusions about what happened to Peter, because he is a prominent figure through the book of Acts and, and through his own epistles. So again, we have a ton of ground to cover this morning. So we're going to hop right in. If you have a handout with you, go ahead and uh, we're going to fill in the first, fill in the blank. Point one, we're going we're gonna to touch upon five truths about Jesus through chapter 21. And the first one is Jesus appears unexpectedly during normal life. Verses one through five, I'll read these again. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way, Simon Peter, Thomas, called twin, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's sons, and two other of his disciples were together. I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to them. We're coming with you, they told him. They went out, got into the boat, but that night caught nothing. When daybreak came, Jesus stood on shore, but the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Friends, Jesus called to them. You don't have any fish, do you? No, they answered. So we have a scene change here. From chapter 20, 
Let's remember, Jesus was crucified, buried, and resurrected in Jerusalem. But, there, but here we have a scene change that the disciples are now back in Galilee. And we know that this is true because the Sea of Tiberias is synonymous uh, as the Sea of Galilee. So they are back in Galilee. And the fact that they're there shows us that the disciples are being obedient to the commands of the risen Lord. Matthew 28, 7 through 10. This is the angel's conversation with the Marys at the tomb in Matthew's account. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he's risen from the dead and indeed he's going out ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I have told you. Verse 8, so departing quickly from the tomb with great fear and great joy, they ran to tell his disciples the news. Just then Jesus met them and said, greetings. They came up, took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus told them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee and they will see me there. Based on Matthew's account, Jesus gives them a direct command to go to Galilee. And the reason why I'm pointing this out is because I do want to show that these disciples are being obedient. And some will argue that these disciples are actually being disobedient by going fishing, as if they had returned to their old way of life. Verse three, they say, I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to him. And his buddies said, well, we're coming with you. They went out, got into the boat, but that night caught nothing. The, the act of fishing, is that disobedience for the disciples? That's the question here. And I would argue, no. Why would they be obedient to come to Galilee in the first place as a group, only to then turn away and pursue their old lives and reject Jesus and his commands? I think what's more probable would be looking at Peter's character. He can't sit still. He can't do nothing. He's quick to action. So being back on his home turf by the Sea of Galilee, he probably said something like this. Well, guys, and we know that, G that Peter had a family. He's like, I'm back at home. I got a family. We're hungry. I know how to fish. I used to be a fisherman. I'm going fishing. And his disciples said, absolutely, let's go. I'm, I'm, I'm going to come with you. And Peter, Peter understands who Jesus is here. Let's remember, Peter, one, walked on water, but two, saw Jesus walk on water through a storm. Peter knows that there's nowhere that he can go that Jesus can't come and reveal himself. Like he's going to miss Jesus coming as they sit in Galilee. So he gets busy with what he knows to provide for himself and others and his family. I can, I can identify with Peter on this. It was just this week that Pastor Marty reminded me of our trip. We went to Ohio, our very first trip. Uh, we went to Ohio for a preaching workshop. And it's a, it's a full day of just, man, you're, you're presenting scripture to people that are way smarter than you. And it's just exhausting and taxing. So after the day's done, you go back to your hotel room, you have dinner, and then you kind of just veg out for a little bit. Well, that works for me, but it only works for me for like an hour or so. And he reminded me that I just stood up at, at one point and I was like, all right, 
I got to go do something. I got to get out of here. And I was like, anybody want to go to Walmart? And uh, unlike Peter's friends, Marty and Fred did not come with me to Walmart. I went by myself to my Sea of Galilee and traveled around Walmart. But I can identify with Peter. I can't sit still. The only reason why I'm, when I'm leading worship is because I'm tethered right here. I would want to walk all the way around because I'm just jittery. I have to be doing something. I have to keep myself busy or I just go crazy. And I think Peter wanted to stay busy here. Knowing fish, he went fishing. And Jesus came unexpectedly during the normal rhythms of life. Now, for us, this is important because in the same way, Jesus tells us that there is, there, no one knows the day or the hour of his second coming, only the Father alone. So the fact that he's showing up to his disciples unexpectedly during normal life, it's screaming at us. We better expect that he will return unexpectedly as well. Now, we have our own mission as believers. We're, we're called to proclaim the gospel. And when he comes, he does expect us to be working as well for that mission. When he returns unexpectedly, he does not want the believer to be idle. It's like when you're at work and your boss kind of catches you sleeping on your desk or something. Well, when Jesus comes, just like the boss opened up the door real quick and tried to see what you were doing, Jesus is going to come unexpectedly, and he does not want to see us sleeping on our desk, not at work for his mission that he has given us. Second truth, Jesus identifies himself through a prior sign. Verses 6 through 14. They say, cast the net on the right side of the boat, he told them, and you'll find some. So they did, and they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. The disciple, the one Jesus loved, said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tied his outer clothing around him, for he had taken it off and plunged into the sea. Since they were not far from land, about a hundred yards. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire there and with fish lying on it and bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus told him them. So Simon Peter climbed up and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, a hundred and fifty-three of them. Even though there were so many, the net was not torn. Come and have breakfast, Jesus told them. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to him. He did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. The disciples, again, were having no luck fishing. And every account of these men being fishermen, they're never catching anything at all. And I wonder how good a fisherman they were. I can imagine that they are now in the glory of the Lord saying, couldn't you just include that one catch that we had and like actually wrote down something that we did uh, in terms of catching fish for our, for our work? But 
if you've ever been fishing and been around a pond and, and just catching nothing, it's not uncommon for somebody to walk past you and ask you, hey, how you doing? Catching anything today? And if you say no, what's the next response that they usually do? If it's a bystander just walking by, typically they're, they, they would say, well, that guy over there was catching a lot of fish. Now, if it's a guy that was fishing and that has packed up his, his tackle for the day and he was catching fish, what would he say? He would typically say, hey, man, that, I was fishing right under that tree over there. And I tell you what, they were hitting all morning. You should go try fishing over there. Completely normal banter. And I say that because it's not like by Jesus saying, cast your net on the other side, that it would trigger their prior experience yet. So the disciples, they figured, well, this guy on shore, it's daybreak. Maybe he sees something that, I, that, that they don't. Maybe he sees a school of fish. So they tossed the net on the right side of the boat. And as a result, they caught a large number of fish. So many that they couldn't haul it. The catch was so marvelous that they actually recorded the number. They counted these fish. 153 of these fish were in that net, which must have been extraordinary for them. Now, in this moment, the disciple that Jesus loved, which we know is, is John, and that's how he refers to himself, himself, he makes a quick connection. He's quick to discern what just happened. It's in that moment that he remembers that experience three years ago, and he's making a connection. And he, what does he do? He's like, Peter, it's the Lord. And what does Peter do? Peter, in Peter fashion, is quick to jump to action. He ties around whatever clothes he took off while he was fishing, and he jumped into the sea, and he swam a 100 yards to see his Lord, to see his Savior. Again, it doesn't really seem like a bunch of men who are disobedient to Jesus. But it is interesting to recognize, at least, the two different responses from both John and Peter. John was quick to discern, make the connection, while Peter was quick to action. Both of which show us the differences in the character and the nature of these disciples. Everybody had their own strengths, their own weaknesses. No two disciples are the same. And that's exactly the same for us today as body of believers. Jesus is using a prior experience, a prior sign in their lives to quantify who he is, who is standing on shore. Now, James, John, Peter would have distinctly remembered this experience. And I'm sure the other disciples had heard many stories about it. They were so sure that Jesus was on shore that what does the scripture say? that no one dared ask who he was because they fully understood and knew it was the Lord. There was no question here. There was absolutely no question. Now, why is it important for us to remember that Jesus quantifies himself 
through a past experience or a sign. Because I think, based on our ages here, that none of us had firsthand experience with the signs and the miracles of Jesus Christ and his ministry on earth. But what we do have is the recorded account of his ministry here, and that's the Bible. And one of the most profound experiences that we need to recognize is found in Acts 1, verse 9 through 11. It says this. Well, this is, this is when Jesus is ascending into heaven, and it says in verse 9, After he said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand up looking into heaven? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. Not only should we expect the unexpected return of Jesus, but Jesus, again, will quantify who he is by coming back in the same way that he left. He will return on a cloud from heaven. This is important for us to understand. This is not our experience, but it is recorded in the Bible. And if we know their experiences, we will understand when that day comes, if we are here, we don't have to be afraid if that's it. When we look up and see Jesus coming on a cloud, if we look into the book of Revelation and, and notice trumpet sounds and Jesus riding a horse, we don't have to be afraid. We know who is coming because we know the word of God. We cannot make connections like John did unless we know his word. Knowing his word will not only give us instructions on how to live and the mission that we're called to, but it will also give us that security and that faith when our Lord does return. We need to know the Bible. We need to be in his word as believers. Because if that day comes and you don't know these prior experiences, fear will overcome you because he is coming as a conquering king this time not as a suffering servant. So we need to know his word. Truth number three, Jesus restores sinners. Now, before we look at Peter's restoration, let's look at the prediction that Jesus made that came true about Peter's denial. Back in John 13, 36 through 38, Lord, Simon Peter said to him, where are you going? And Jesus answered, now this is during the last supper. Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Lord, Peter asked, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus replied, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, I tell you, a rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Peter made a bold claim. Not only a bold claim that he would lay down his life, but he made this bold claim in front of all of the other disciples. 
that he would lay down his life no matter what. But just as Jesus had predicted, when, when Jesus was on trial and when Jesus was betrayed and taken in the hands of, of the high priest, this prediction, this prophecy of Jesus's came true. Peter did not lay down his life for Jesus. Instead, he denied him three times. He denied even knowing Jesus. This is why chapter 21 is so important. Because without it, we have no idea what happened as a result of Peter's denial. We have no clue. And then we just make assumptions about his prominence throughout the other books. So let's look at his restoration. Verses 15 through 17, back in chapter 21. It says, When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him. You know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him. You know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. After Jesus revealed himself, they took a minute and they had a meal together. They fellowshiped together. They caught up. They had some quality time. But Peter gets questioned by Jesus. And this seems to be, since they all were eating together, this was a public questioning in front of his disciples. And it's important because Peter publicly made the claim before the other disciples that he would never deny him and that he would lay down his life if it came down to it, yet he failed to do so. So Peter is restoring him publicly in front of the other disciples. I'm sorry, Jesus is restoring Peter in front of the other disciples. And he starts with a question. Do you love me more than these? Now the question and the debate is what is the more than these? Is it the 153 fish or is it the disciples themselves? If, if we remember Peter's response in Matthew 26, 33, this is not on the screen. But Peter says differently in a different uh, gospel account. He says in front of all the other disciples, if everyone falls away from you or away because of you, I will never fall away. He's boasting in front of the other disciples that he would never fall away even if they did. So Jesus asks Peter in front of the other disciples, do you love me more than these? Peter's the one that denied him. He was the one that was boasting that he would never do that. So now Jesus is going to humble him a little bit by questioning his motives in front of everybody else. Now, Jesus asked this same question three times, no doubt symbolic of his three denials. 
And all three times, Peter responds in a new humble way. At the Last Supper, he boasted about not denying Jesus, you know, relying on his own strength, relying on his own courage, his own will. But now he answers Jesus, making a plea to what Jesus knows about his heart. That's different. That's a different response for Peter. Peter was humbled by his inability to keep his word. But his plea to Jesus to look inside of his heart just screams, Lord, I didn't act right. My words didn't line up with my actions. But please look in my heart. You know that I love you. You know all things. That's his plea. It's no longer, Peter is no longer saying, I can do this. I'm Peter. It's now a plea to what Jesus knows about his heart. And by the time the third question comes around, I can't imagine the remorse that Peter was feeling to be questioned three times if he loved his Savior. I just can't imagine it. I mean, it says in Scripture that Peter was grieved that he asked them three times. But Jesus, Jesus needed to restore him. He needed to restore his authority in front of those disciples. And he gave him specific directives for his calling in his life. The fact is, that's Peter's restoration. But for us, Jesus restores sinners. We have all denied Jesus way more than three times. Our actions do not always line up that we love Jesus at all. Our words don't always come out of our mouth in a loving way that points people to Jesus. Our past doesn't always say that, man, I love Jesus. But the good news is, is we have a gospel message. Jesus came and died for sinners like us, paying the debt that we owe for our sins. And he was resurrected so that anyone who would repent and believe in his name, they would be restored. They would be, they would be forgiven and they would have a right relationship back with God the Father. Jesus restores sinners like you and like me. Now, loving Jesus isn't a mere feeling. Loving Jesus is active, ongoing. It's abiding in his word. It's following him. It's obeying his commands. Let's see what Jesus says loving him would look like in John 14. Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Friends, if we love Jesus, we'll keep his commands. We will obey his word. It's not a call to live perfectly. 
Only Jesus can live the life perfectly. But it is a call to obey his commands. It's a call to wage war against our fleshly desires. It's a, it's a call to actually follow him. It's an action response. We will sin. There's no doubt. But that sin should affect us in a way that after that it has taken place in our life, that it brings us to a point of repentance. And our God is faithful to forgive when we repent of those sins. And those sins, as, as time goes on and, and we are sanctified in the image of the beloved son, Jesus Christ, those sins should diminish. If they don't, we need to ask ourselves, are we loving Jesus? Are we obeying his commands? Repent of those sins. We have a, a forgiving God We have salvation through Jesus Christ. So let us come to him with a heart of repentance and seek his forgiveness when we do fail. Truth number four. Jesus requires obedience in your individual calling. Jesus requires obedience in your individual calling. Verses 18 through 23. Truly I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and somebody, someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. He said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. After saying this, he told him, Follow me. So Peter turned around and saw the disciple Jesus loved following them. The one who leaned back against Jesus at the supper and asked, Lord, who is the one that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? If I want him to remain until I come, Jesus answered, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. So this rumor spread to the other brothers and sisters that the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not tell him that he would not die. But if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? No sooner Peter was restored, Jesus gives him some hard-to-swallow news. It's not a new prophecy from Jesus about Peter, but rather a deeper explanation of the one that was stated back in John during the Last Supper, John 13, 36 again. Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. The later is now coming to fruition here. The later is now closer than ever for Peter. Peter's proclamation that he would never deny his Lord and that he would lay his life down his life will need to be laid down Jesus is telling him and the interesting thing about uh, Peter laying his life down is in scripture it says it will result 
in glorifying God. This gives, this gives us hope that when we stand for Jesus Christ, and if that results in our death, then our death glorifies who we follow. That should give us hope. That should give us hope to take the message of the gospel to the nations. That's what the, the CrossCon event was all about over the weekend here that Mel held. This same Peter, three plus years ago, during the first miraculous catch, what, what was his action? He fell at Jesus' feet and he said, please depart from me for I am a sinful man. But Jesus restores sinners. And Jesus gives him a mission. Not only a mission, but he tells him the cost of that mission. We're, we're on mission as well. And Jesus tells us, as believers, we are called to pick up our cross and to carry it, even if that means death. That doesn't really hit too hard with us because we're not back in the Roman Empire. But they would see men carrying their cross, participating in their own death. So when you think about it like that, we're called to carry our cross. We're called to participate possibly in our own death to glorify God. That's the cost that Jesus is giving Peter here. The beautiful realization of this narrative is that Peter followed him. Jesus gives him a prophecy that you're going to die. You're going to die in the same way that I died, and it's going to glorify God. And church history tells us that that actually happened. It happened in so much that Peter, church history says, that he didn't want to be crucified the same way as his, his Lord, so he got crucified upside down. That was his plea. That's a beautiful realization. One, because his death glorifies God. Two, it substantiates the word itself. Why would anybody give their life for something that isn't true? The Bible is true. John's gospel is true. Peter obeyed. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Did Peter love Jesus? Yeah. Did Peter obey his commands? Church history says yes. If you're a believer, if you have been restored because of what Christ did on the cross for you, atoning for your sins, then you have to ask the question, are you loving Jesus? Are you obeying his commands? Or are you obeying the ones that are easy to obey and kind of separating the two? Because following Jesus as Peter's example isn't easy. 
it will cost you something. It could cost you money. It could cost you relationships. It can cost you uh, relationships with friends and family. It can cost you your life. The question is, what will you count most valuable in your life? Are you willing to lay down everything for the name of Jesus Christ? Because that's the commitment. That's the obedience that Jesus wants us to have. And that obedience can only happen in our life if we value him highest. There's no way that we will lay down uh, worldly passions, worldly desires, sinful desires, unless we hold Jesus to a higher standard in our own lives. So give it up, follow him, love him, obey him. Now, Peter, in Peter fashion, gets right back to the, his, his normal character. And he turns around and says, what about John? What about this guy? You're telling me I'm going to die? What about John? Now, Jesus responds in the same, much of the same way that, that God responds to Job in the book of Job. When Job questions what God is doing in his life, Jesus says, If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. That's the title of this sermon. As for you, follow me. Jesus wants Peter to be obedient to what he's called him to. He doesn't want him to judge his calling against somebody else's calling. He doesn't want him to look at another disciple and say, well, my cost is so much greater than what you've called them to lose. That's not not what Jesus wants here. We're exactly the same way today as Peter was. It's easy to look around and say, you know what, I'm not serving because what he's asking me to do in my own heart It just doesn't seem fair because Pastor Marty gets to be in charge of youth. And his calling is easier than what he's calling me to do. So I'm just going to sit back and I'm not going to be obedient to the calling in my life. We're We're not to do that. We can't do that. We have to avoid even thinking in that way when those feelings and those desires happen in our own life. We have to reject that. Remember, Peter, Peter being obedient to his own calling. God has placed each and every believer in the body of Christ. And in the body of Christ, there's very many members of that body. And those members each have their own specific roles, their own specific functions in the body of Christ. Think of our own natural bodies. If my hand wants to be a foot and they trade places, I ain't going to walk right at all. And my hands are going to stink like feet. And it's not going to be pretty. The body will suffer. The overall body will suffer. It will not operate in the way that it was designed. It can still operate, 
It'll walk on my hands. But it won't operate in the way that it was designed to operate. And in the same way, believers, when they disobey and they don't want to do the functions that they're called to do, they don't want to operate in the roles that they're called to in that season of life, then the overall body doesn't function the way that it should. We're called to be obedient to whatever role he has called us to. And friends, I'm going to tell you this, that our role is not one to sit back, to consume, to be a spectator. Remember what it, what, what it means to love Jesus. It means to follow his commands, to be obedient to his words. There's action in loving Jesus. We're called to co-labor with Christ. We're on mission. We're one body. We need to be unified. We need to use our gifts and our strengths together for the mission of Jesus Christ and spreading the gospel even to the ends of the earth. Our final point, point number five. Jesus' works cannot be contained. Jesus' works cannot be contained. Verses 24 through 25. This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if every one of them were written down, I suppose not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. It's an interesting ending to chapter 21. John can only end this way if he remembers how he started his gospel in the first place. If we turn to John chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, let's read it and remember. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him and apart from him. Not one thing was created that has been created. There's been many important men here on earth, important women that biographies and autobiographies were written. But to say that the earth is an insufficient library for the books that could be written about Jesus Christ is a huge claim. Unless you remember how he started his gospel. Unless you, chapters 1 through 20, you've come to the conclusion that the purpose statement Uh, in the end of 20, drew you to uh, believing in Jesus Christ and who he was. Chapters 1 through 20 is sufficient evidence to believe in Jesus Christ. I would encourage you, if you have not made that step yet, reread chapters 1 through 20. It's sufficient evidence to believe to understand who Jesus Christ is. That's what John is trying to convey. 
But when we believe in Jesus, and we believe in John 1, 1 through 3, and we believe he is the word. He was with God. He was there at the beginning. All things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created. Think about everything that was created here on earth, here, all the planets. I mean, it, you just, it, it would blow your mind. It's only in that that we can understand what John is making his claim about. Jesus is God. He created everything through Jesus. And those books, if they even could be written, if that account of creation through Jesus, if that could be recorded, which it can't, earth is an insufficient library for Jesus Christ's works. That is who our Savior is. He's an amazing God. So we need to remember how John ends chapter 20. We need to remember how he starts his gospel. And we need to live and obey his commands. We're all called to be on mission for Jesus Christ. Say yes to that mission and be obedient to your individual calling. And even if it leads to death, your life will glorify God. And it will glorify his son who came and died on your behalf to ransom us back into right relationship with the Father.